0: Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Throughout the seven letters to the seven churches addressed by the Lord in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself with different titles, each specific to believers he's writing to. This is no less true when he addresses the church at Philadelphia. We'll discover this title and the reason for it as we join Pastor Phil now in Revelation chapter 3.
1: Look, we're living in a world where very little is real. Accept sin and coming judgment. Several years ago, my family, we were able to go on a tour of Universal Studios. And they take you on some of these back lots where they film some of these movies. And you're driving down this street and you see these houses, or if it's a Western set, you see the saloon and you see different things. And it looks very real from the street. If you go around back, there's just a couple of sticks holding the thing up. It's just nothing but a front, it's a facade. There's nothing really there. That's this world. It presents a good front, but there's nothing really behind it holding it up, really. Jesus, though, is the real deal. The God of this world, he makes this world look like it's full of all kinds of things that are going to make you fulfilled and happy and give you meaning for life. It's all an illusion. Only Jesus Christ is truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, he is real. He is true. He is genuine because he is God. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 1? He said that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the word image there was uh, taken from a term whereby you would place a picture on a table, put a piece of tracing paper over it, and you would trace an exact duplicate. Jesus Christ is the exact image of God because He is God incarnate. He's not a cheap copy. He's not like so many Jesuses floating around today. Even as Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 11, there are many Jesuses, many different Gospels that the devil is flooding the world with. You want to believe in Jesus? The devil says, fine, but believe in my Jesus. Well, who's your Jesus? Oh, He's a very socially active Jesus, He's an environmental Jesus. He is a tolerant Jesus. He's a Jesus that will not judge anybody. He's a Jesus that is the Jesus of the Broadway, etc. That's not my Jesus. I mean, that might be many people's version of Jesus, but that's not our Jesus. Our Jesus is God. Our Jesus is holy. Our Jesus is righteous. And yes, He's a Jesus who loves because He's God, and yet as God He cannot turn his back on sin and unrighteousness and is calling all men everywhere to repent by coming to christ and receiving forgiveness of sins because god is a loving god who didn't want to see anyone go to hell but if people refuse to receive christ then guess what he will have to be their righteous judge and if they wind up going to hell it won't be god's fault as people say well how could a loving god send anyone to hell i mean that's terrible No, a loving God is offering you a way to escape hell if you will just reach out and receive Christ. If you refuse to do that, then you are to blame if you go to hell. And so Satan has blinded people's minds, though. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in their hearts. I mean, the devil wants to keep us away from truth. And so he floods into this world all kinds of lies and deceptions that are—they look like truth, but it's kind of like the uh, the bowl of fruit uh, on a store shelf. It looks so good, but you walk over and you you take a bite, you realize you just bit into a piece of wax. <laughs> the devil's—the devil offers things that look so appealing and they're like they're going to satisfy us, but in reality, they're a lie. Now Jesus went on to say. That he was holy and true. He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Not only is our Savior holy and true, but he has authority. He has authority to open things and shut things. In fact, in Matthew 28, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he said to his church, Now go, I am giving you that authority to go. But keys, he has the key of David. He opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one, no one opens. Look, keys speak of authority uh, or ownership. Uh, I have in my pocket keys to my house. I have keys to my house because I own my house. If you have keys to my house, see me afterward. <laughs> but you're not supposed to have keys to my house. Unless I was going away on an extended vacation, me and my family, and I said to you, look, will you do me a big favor and house sit? Uh, I've got the the Maytag repairman coming over. to Look at the washing machine on Wednesday. (laughs) Would you be there waiting for him? Let him in. See, I'm, I'm asking you to be a steward now over what belongs to me. I'm giving you my keys. Even though you don't own my house, I'm asking you to watch over it. And as such, I'm asking you to let in only those who should be let in and to keep out by locking the doors those that shouldn't be in. Keys speak of ownership, authority, or stewardship. Now in chapter 1, we read that Jesus holds the keys of hell and death. We've already looked at that. But to this missionary church, it says that he holds an additional key, the key of David. What is this key of David? Well, This takes us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22. And you can read that on your own from about verse... Well, you can read the entire chapter, but let me just kind of sum it up for you. In Isaiah chapter 22, Assyria had invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, as Isaiah had warned. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders were trusting in Egypt to deliver them and not in the Lord God. One of the leaders at that time was a man by the name of Shibna, who was the treasurer in the kingdom of Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, who was king at this time. As treasurer, he held the key of David. The key of David was the key to the palace and especially to the the, uh, king's treasury. It was called the key of David because the palace in Judah uh, was occupied by the kings, the monarchs, and they were all of the lineage of David, the house of David. So to say the key of David, you're simply saying the key to the palace and the palace treasury, the treasury of the nation. Unfortunately, Shibna was an evil man. And he used his office in the riches of the kingdom not to help or to do good for the people, but really to line his own pocket. He used them for his own personal gain. God knew what was going on, and so at one point he had Sheba removed or Shibna, I should say, removed from office. And he installed a faithful man named Eliakim and gave him the key of David to hold because he became the new treasurer. He was a faithful steward. And Eliakim in the scriptures is a type of Jesus Christ who himself was a faithful steward over his father's house. But Jesus Christ alone has the key of the kingdom, the key to heaven the place where all of God's riches, all of God's blessings reside, the treasures that someday we're going to inherit. Remember how the Bible says that we who are God's people are waiting to inherit someday an eternal reward, treasures in heaven. Jesus Christ holds the key to heaven. And he opens heaven to those who are his people to those who have received him, who are the children of God. And when he opens that door to them, nobody can shut it. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? Nobody can keep you out of heaven. Because the son of David, Jesus Christ, has the key. And he is allowing those who have received him as Lord and Savior to enter in. And because of it, nobody can keep you out. You will be glorified. But also he can shut and lock the door of heaven to those that are not his. And I think in some ways this key could be the key to the city. The city of David, but not the old Jerusalem, the what? The new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, we we read about the new Jerusalem and how we as the people of God are allowed to enter the city. As we enter the city, the Lord locks the door in a sense behind us because... Outside, he keeps out all unbelievers. In fact, it says in verse 8 of Revelation 21, But outside are the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. They shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so he will close the door on those who have refused to receive him as Lord and Savior. And he opens to it the children of God, those who have received Christ. Well, as the outline of each of these letters continues, we now come into the commendation part of the letter. And in verse 8, Jesus says to this church, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The Lord tells this church, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. Jesus gave them this open door for three reasons. First of all, they had a little strength. The Greek word is dunamis, the word we get our word power from. Folks, this is not a put down. He's not saying, eh, you got a little strength. He's saying your church is small. It's not prosperous. It's it's few in number. It's a struggling church financially. You don't have the big bank account like Laodicea. You don't have all the all the amenities like that church down the road we'll talk about next week. You're few in number. You're a poor church, but you're making an impact on your city. Why? Because you're relying on the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit. They were a small church, but they were making a big impact in their city because, as I said earlier, God can use small things for great things if they just rely on His strength and not on their own. He took 120 disciples in an upper room 2,000 years ago and turned the world upside down with them. You don't have to be extremely talented or educated or, or, or wealthy or whatever to be used by God. God wants to use whatever gifts or talents you have because he's able to use little things in fact the bible says he takes the weak the foolish things the base things things that are despised he uses these things to glorify himself by taking these instruments using them in ways that go so far beyond their ability the world looks at them and the work god's doing through them and says man there's no way that strange guy is doing that incredible work for god it's got to be the holy spirit And that's what God wants. He wants to get all the glory for the work that he does. But here's the good news. He wants to use us if we're willing and humble and we don't take the bows for what he is wanting to do. But I want you to notice, this is a last days church, the true church in the last days. And what was Jesus saying to them? You are not very large. You are few in number. Yet those of you who know me, are making an impact. Now, I say that because some people teach that in the last days there's going to be this incredible move of the Spirit all over the world. We're going to see dead people getting raised to life. We're going to see people all over the globe healed. We're going to see miracles wrought. It's going to be, in fact, there was a whole doctrine years ago, and it resurfaces every once in a while the manifested sons of God, the latter rain movement. In the last days, there's going to be a latter outpouring of the Spirit, and incredible miracles are going to happen around the world. Look, God is still working around the world. Somewhere in the world, he is raising the dead as we speak. He is healing the sick. He is is giving sight to the blind. But as I read my Bible, what's going to characterize the church in the last days is not great signs and wonders. It's what? Apostasy. One author said this, and I quote, There are those who teach that in the last days there will be a major manifestation of the sons of God that miracles will happen, wherein every sick person is healed and glorious things will occur. But I believe that's hype and hyperbole. Yes, there are some good things happening, but it's the time of little strength. Jesus does not say this condescendingly or condemningly. He merely says that's the way it's going to be during the age of Philadelphia. Thus, it's not an indictment, but rather an honest assessment of the last day's church, the true church. Well, first of all, they had a little strength. Secondly, he commended them because they kept his word. Like Job, they could say, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, verse 12. As I've already said, the church of Philadelphia is the true church, the true church. In the last days. It is not the denominational church which, for the most part, no longer even believes in the inspiration of the word, let alone is teaching it faithfully. But they're not the only ones. It's not just the denominational churches that are no longer teaching the word. There are many so-called evangelical churches that are not teaching the word faithfully anymore either. And this gets into what Paul predicted. He said in 2 Timothy 4, He told Timothy, who was a young pastor, he said, Timothy, you preach the word of God and you do it in season, out of season, whether you feel like it or whether you don't, whether people are receptive or whether they're hostile, you preach that word, Timothy. He said, for the time is coming when they will not endure, and he's not talking about the world now, he's talking about the church, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, healthy teaching from the word of God. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the last days, Paul said there would come into the church a mentality that says, look, we don't want to hear sound doctrine. Don't talk to us about the cross. Don't talk to us about suffering and and self-denial. We want to have our ears tickled. We want to be told how we can be healthy and prosperous, how we can be blessed and multiply, you know, in riches and all kinds of things. And don't you know, if people want to hear that kind of message, there's always going to be some pastor somewhere who will be willing to give it to them because his desire is to build a big church. You know what? It's not my desire to build a big church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. I don't try to get in the way of what the Lord's going to do. My desire is to build strong disciples. That's my desire. And to do that, we have to teach you the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, verse by verse, if we're going to be able to say, we have committed into your care the whole counsel of God. You know, the problem with some of these guys on TV, they're so busy smiling at everybody. They're so busy being positive and upbeat. It's not wrong to smile. I wish some of these guys would smile a little less and cry a little more. These are dark days. These are evil days. These are days when families are under attack and people are being deceived by the devil and things like drugs and alcohol and all kinds of horrible things the devil is using to destroy lives and families and nations and things. This is not a time to be laughing. It's a time to be weeping, as James said. We need to be broken before God. We need to be on our knees before God, confessing our sins. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven their prayers. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. We're laughing and having a party. We ought to be crying and confessing our sins. Our families are at stake. Our nation is hanging in the balance. Third thing they did that Jesus commended them for. Not only only did they continue in the power of the Holy Spirit, even though they were small, and they kept his word, they did not deny his name. They did not deny his name. His name, the name of God, means all that God is, the character of God. What Christian so-called church would deny Jesus' name? Oh, they use the name of Jesus all over the place. But when the scriptures talk about, when Jesus says here specifically, that you guys did not deny my name. You did not stray from who I am. You did not present a false Christ. You didn't go ahead and water me down to make me more appealing to people. You presented me as I am. You kept proclaiming my deity. You didn't just make me a good teacher or a moral leader or some avatar that came down the pike. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are people today who are, well, the Unitarians say that Jesus is God in the sense that we are all God. That's denying his name. Or the Mormon church, which claims to be a Christian church, but believes that in eternity past, Jesus, who was the brother of Lucifer, was up in heaven waiting for a body to be incarnated into. And finally, he and Lucifer were incarnated on the earth and their brothers. Or as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that Jesus Christ is a created being. In fact, he's Michael the archangel. See, all this is denying his name. This is not the true Jesus. So these three things are the criteria for success in our Savior's eyes. You see this? Folks, it's not about, as some call it, nickels and noses or buildings and budgets. They don't determine success in the eyes of God. Jesus considers the church successful when they are being led by and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit regardless of their size, when they are keeping His Word, not watering it down to placate people, but but teaching the whole counsel of God. And thirdly, they're not denying His name by turning Him into some kind of politically correct Jesus. Look, we believe in the biblical Jesus Christ, who is God Almighty, second person of the Trinity, who was born a man, died on the cross for our sins, three days later rose from the dead bodily, ascended back to the Father, is coming again someday to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that is never going to end. That's our Jesus. And you would say, yes, amen to that. But you know, we have a lot of churches that would bristle if they heard me say that because they're so busy trying to make Jesus this, I don't know, politically correct Casper milk toast who walks around, you know, patting everybody on the back and going, oh, hey, great, whatever. <laughs> Are you happy? That's all that matters to me. Just be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Now, because this church had these works going for them, Jesus set before them, an open door which no one could shut. He said, "What is this open door?" Well, there's been numerous uh, interpretations, but let me tell you what I think this open door is, based on four scriptures that come right out of the New Testament, Acts chapter 14, verse 27, where Paul says, "Now when or uh, Luke says, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them." Paul is giving a report of uh, him and his missionary team what God had done in their last missionary journey, and how that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Paul said, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. And then finally, Colossians 4, verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So you get the idea. This door, or the doors that we just read in those scriptures, were doors of spiritual opportunity to preach the gospel. Either God had opened a door to do that, or Paul was saying pray that God would open a door for us to preach the gospel. But in scripture, an open door speaks of an opportunity to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here was a church that had a heart to reach the lost, and you know what? God gave to them the desire of their heart, and he opened a door of opportunity for ministry and evangelism. And notice again in verse 8, who opens the door that nobody can shut? Who opens the door of ministry and opportunity for the church? Jesus. And when he opens that door... Nobody is going to shut it until he says it's to be shut. I bring that out because you got a lot of TV preachers today who are trying to manipulate money out of people by telling them things like if you don't send your money in to do the work for the work of God, the work of God is going to come to a stop, the door of ministry is going to be shut. Well, they don't know my Jesus. My God is able to finish what he starts, and he doesn't need you and I. He allows us the privilege of. Being a part of the work, if we want to be, it's not dependent on us, never has been, never will be. So, you know, if you don't send your money in, the work of God will come to us to an end. The door ministry will be shut. Jesus says, look, I don't know who you're talking about, but when I open a door, nobody shuts it until I say it's shut. We need to pray, as Paul admonished us, to pray that God would open doors of opportunity And we've been praying that for our church, and you know what? He keeps opening these doors of opportunity that require some pretty big steps in faith. But that's what we've been praying. Lord, do things through our church that go so far beyond our abilities that when you do the work, you will get all the glory. Of course, when you pray a prayer like that, what you're asking is, God, lead me to the end of the cliff, and then tell me to take a step over the side and just trust you. You know, it's a lot easier to pray those prayers than to live them out. I mean, you know. They all sound good in the meeting, like, yeah, I want God to do great. Well, you have to realize that when you pray a prayer like that, God says, okay, you ready? See that cliff? Step over. Trust me. Well, Lord, now I don't know about, is there anybody else up there?
0: You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.